I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. On this episode of Systemic, we sit down with Dr. Melissa Aniwo. Dr. Aniwo is an Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of Black Studies at the University of Scranton, Pennsylvania. She is also the co-chair of the Vampire Studies area of the National Popular Culture Association, a transplanted Nigerian-British citizen with a background in race, gender, diversity, and visual archetypes. She writes and presents on vampires and their connection to racial and gendered stereotypes. She's also published several works teaching diversity using these images. Our discussion will examine the policing of black bodies throughout history through the lens of othering. We all know the image of the evil and vile black man, the sexy and voluptuous Jezebel, and the docile Mamie. But have we ever given thought to the purpose of these images and how they further an obsession with controlling and monitoring black bodies? All right, and thank, welcome everyone back to another episode of Systemic. Today, my uh, guest is Professor Melissa Aniwo, who is the Assistant Professor of History at the University of Scranton right now. Uh, and we're going to talk today a little bit about the the, the notion of policing and, and monitoring of black bodies and sort of what we do, whether it's our hair, skin, whatever it is. Uh, and so I want to start, uh, Melissa, if you would, tell me a little bit about the notion of otherness, uh, whether in the U.S. or in the U.K. when it comes to, to minority bodies and these things. Yeah, thank you. The concept of otherness is an interesting one, right? That we understand ourselves by what we are not. Mm -hmm. And so particularly in a world in which there are, I mean, I'm British, so our biggest obsession is social class. So a space in which there are these social classes where clearly you're being oppressed as you go down the social class, Mm -hmm. you find a reason why everybody at the bottom is at the bottom and not looking up. So we all start to argue about our differences amongst ourselves. So the poor black person is arguing with the poor white person. Mm -hmm. The idea of the need for, to understand who I am by looking at people that I'm not becomes a really interesting way to create inequality. Mm -hmm. So I am better because you are that. And And the black body has always been this obsession with in whiteness, right? The idea that in some ways it's somehow more connected to nature, somehow it's more natural and effusive, somehow we're out of control, we're too much, we're, because then that allows um, the structure at the top to imprison other whites, mm-hmm. like this is how you have to behave, otherwise you're gonna be like them and here's the consequence of being like them. So the our fascination with hair is a really good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Why would you care about how how someone's hair looks like? Exactly. But it becomes this, it's become this obsession with not just your hair, but what your hair means about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They add all these stereotypes. I might have my hair natural, so therefore I'm not professional. I'm not someone who cares about the way that I look because I'm not trying to do my hair in a way that reflects or apes white standards of beauty. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's one thing that's normal and everything else is abnormal. Right. 
yet we desire the abnormal, right? It's that fantasy, that fetishized version of blackness that I think is has never gone away, right? right? I think it's just as much, it's just as important today as it was back in the 1600s. Well, and it's interesting that you frame it that way because I'm thinking of uh, Birth of a Nation and and the images of the black body as this, the black male specifically is a savage beast who is going to come and steal white women and do all these things. And in reality, that wasn't even happening at that point. We had, in that image, when it comes out is years, many years after sort of that was the worry, but that there's that image of that monstrous individual who's coming after you that if, and if they are this, then we must be better. And then it sets up that weird dichotomy. But then when we look back at history, there's always been that delineation of black versus white and that if you choose to associate with black, then we're going to consider you this. But no one wants to talk about the class issue of, well, no, there's a reason we, we associate you that way. We think of you as lesser. We won't say that. We're just going to control you. Could you speak to that a little? Yes. So I can give you a perfect example of that. So in colonial America, despite what people are confusing, right? So there was no law for slavery when the colonies first started. Mm-hmm. So those people that came in 1619 became indentured servants, right? And then once they worked off their indenture, they became free and started then to have indentured servants of their own. Once we start to run out of land, so in Virginia we're getting less and less land, Mm -hmm. I want to ensure then that people that look like me are the ones getting land. Right. Then I start to discriminate against. And then when we get to Bacon's Rebellion is my favorite point. So you have all these poor indentured servants working together, becoming friends, becoming lovers, et cetera, et cetera. And there is nothing there about race or ethnicity. Right. And then we start to look up and say, hang on a second, why are we living in poverty when you guys are living in wealth? And then up there they say, well, hang on a second. We want to make sure that you poor whites and you poor blacks are not getting along. So then we're going to add this whole dimension that says, if you are white, you are better than. And whiteness represents freedom. Mm -hmm. Blackness represents savagery and enslavement. And if you decide to hang out with them, then yes, you are a savage. And even miscegenation laws made that very clear. If you were a white woman who had sex with a black man, you gave up your race. That meant you chose to become black. And then your example with birth of a nation is so fascinating. And again, it's because black people were doing really well, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so by 1915, we had proven that slavery was over and we could succeed on our own. So you need to remind people, no, black people can't be the same. They're not like us. They should, you should be afraid of them. And then if you think that's 1915, so from 1915 to 1923 is a period of astonishing violence mm-hmm. against black people, right? The idea that black people might serve in the army. So now we have to kill black soldiers to remind them that just because you fought in France, it doesn't make you an equal. Right. It's those kind of terrifying things that, and you think about why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think Birth of a Nation is great because it's a movie. <laughs> it's, a one, it's the first blockbuster. So you're watching that film and you're thinking, yeah, this is real. This is, okay, this is why mm-hmm. I should be afraid of black people. That's the, and I think that that keeps going and going in really subtle ways. That's not very subtle. But then I just think about the way in which we rep- represent, particularly the black male body in, mm-hmm. in, in the news today, mm-hmm. right? That it's still very clear. You should be afraid of this person because he's a black man. And if you do anything to him, mm-hmm. he deserves that treatment. There's nothing, there's nothing that, there's nothing that they cannot do wrong, right? That everything that about a black man makes you a criminal. Mm-hmm. I think that's so, and that's true in Britain too. Like yeah. I think 
that it's black manhood that seems to be more terrifying than black femininity because mm -hmm. black femininity can be exploited, right? You can reproduce them and make money out of their babies. Right. Like there are all sorts of ways in which you can exploit it that black manhood you can't exploit in the same ways. And so it makes it even more terrifying. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I tell my students, if a racist is saying it about black people, that's because they're doing it. <laughs> that's it. So if you're talking about black men raping white women, the only reason they're saying it is because they're raping black women. Right, right, that's right. The, so they, they're not, they don't have much of an imagination. Mm -hmm. They just tell you what they're doing. Right, right. And add it to someone else doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the... Um, and that's really interesting. Um, that point that, that the projection of if I'm doing something wrong, I want to make sure no one looks at me. So I'm going to cast this doubt everywhere else. And that we see it outside of even race that that happens so often when we look at LGBTQ issues right now, we continuously see a lot of conservative individuals who are saying all these things. But that's who almost at every turn is caught doing what they've projected on other groups. And so um, it's fascinating <clears throat> that you bring that point up. But I like this idea of this otherness and there's this villain that we must separate ourselves for and how you've tied this into your work looking in using sort of vampires as a way for within the classroom to say, we'll use this as the context of otherism and this idea that here's this vile, horrible beast that we don't want you crossbreeding with. We don't want you associating with. If you do, you're one of them. Why vampirism is sort of a way of, of making it something that students can understand. We're talking about race, but let's do it in this way that's much more accessible. Why, why that route? So the most practical reason was people kept accusing me of being racist because mm -hmm. I teach at predominantly white schools, right? And so there is that, those kind of five stages of grief that you encounter in civil rights teaching, right? So there's that shame, there's that feeling of guilt. And in a semester, it's hard to get beyond that to mm -hmm. the bit at the end. So using a vampire, I when I was, so when I was 11, I was a weird kid. I loved to read. <laughs> I loved to stay in the library. Didn't want to be out playing. And my teacher, the librarian, gave me this silly little job where I would put books back on the shelves. But it wasn't really a job. It was just something for me to do. Mm -hmm. And she gave me Dracula. And what struck me about Dracula was he didn't do anything wrong. He was a monster before, just <laughs> by mentioning his name. And that made me think of my brother. Mm -hmm. right? So at the time, I was like 11. He would have been about 13. And he'd already been consistently picked up by the police, right? Not for doing anything, just because he's a black boy walking down the street. Right. And that really stayed with me. I didn't know what to do with it back then, mm -hmm. but it really stayed with me that I identified with the monster, with right. Dracula. And so many, many years later, and I should have done my dissertation on it, but I'm glad I did like it. <laughs> but, but many, many, many years later, I was obsessed with vampires. Like that's my that's my cultural fun thing. Mm -hmm. Like if it's a vampire movie, I've seen it. If it's a vampire novel, I've read it. And then I thought, what is really clear about the vampire narrative is they start out as monsters. They're still monsters today, but now we want to be that monster or we want to be with that monster. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the same as the anti-Black kind of narrative that we see as well. Mm -hmm. That we start as these terrifying monsters and we only hear their, we only hear the human perspective. We never hear their perspective. So because we only hear it from the outside, right? right. They are, of course, monsters and everything they do is monstrous because they're not like us. Now just replace that with black people. Yeah. It makes so much more sense when you think of it like that. Mm -hmm. And then that fascination that whites have with things like hip hop or R&B or wearing baggy jeans or, do you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. those, up those bits of black culture that seem exciting. It's the same thing with the vampire. Yeah. So it makes it super interesting. Now you want to be vampires. You don't actually want to kill people. Mm -hmm. but you 
want to be vampires, you want to be cool and live forever and be beautiful. So you want those elements that are safe. You don't actually want to do the thing that you think is ugly about the vampire. And to me, that's exactly the same with race. Yeah, that's really and interesting. Okay. And most of the novels that you read that are worth reading, even Twilight, mm-hmm. it's less about vampires than it is about other things. So the first book I used was Charlene Harris's Dead Until Dark. And I used it because it's a, it's the origin story for the show True Blood. Okay. And I used it because it's a novel about vampires, but it's really a novel about race relations in the South. Okay. That's obviously what the book is about. And it was really interesting that I could use a vampire novel, but be teaching about something else that's completely different. And then after that, I was just off. <laughs> and I love it. The other one that works those vampires is superheroes. Yes. So if you look at the progress of the black male superhero, that's also a really great way of seeing how we've gone from anti-heroes as monstrous to anti-heroes as desirable. Okay. And I find that troubling. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it's the idea that the victimizer, the vic- yeah, the victimizer was actually a victim to start with, which is fine, but the Joker's still a murderer. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I don't think that softening, sympathizing, empathizing with their origins changes the idea that they're still murderers right. a black man is not a murderer he's just been stereotyped in a bad way right so that's a very different thing but it's still and i also think students have no idea they've heard of black panther right mm-hmm. but they have no idea of how many black superheroes there are and how many black female superheroes there are yeah yeah and how many of those were created by white artists that mm-hmm. are actually really empowering so that's the other way of showing the how we've gone from hatred to desirability. Well, and I think it's really that the notion that the vampire or the black male was never was born this way. There yes. was there was nothing innately wrong in the person, but that the other group, the actual other group, not them, view their power, their whatever, as this sort of dangerous thing that if we allow them to recognize their self-worth, to recognize their power, we are in trouble, which is probably not true either, but that innate fear that if I allow someone else to become as powerful or is have as much self-esteem as I do, I've become less than, so we cast them out in this negative light. And it's really, you see it really, really prominent with the vampires. And so I love that that's that entry point to talking about race and and the difference in how, as a social construct, race doesn't really exist. But because we live under this construct for so long, we just fall into these patterns and we assume, well, you are black, therefore you are this violent criminal thug, da-da-da-da-da-da. Same about vampires. And yes, vampires do drink blood, but we've seen in the way that they've changed over time, something that you've talked about how, well, there are some that don't have to drink human blood or they find ways of coexisting in the world that allows them to be who they are, but still be acceptable by sort of the dominant human culture in the long run. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that one of the first articles I wrote about using vampires and race, I was struggling with that idea, right? So if you think about, I was struggling with Blade Trinity specifically, so at the end of Blade Trinity, the purpose of Blade Trinity is to find a cure for vampirism. Mm-hmm. The cure is to kill all vampires, <laughs> right? And that to me was super problematic, right? So even in the original version, Blade dies too, right? Mm-hmm. So there, and at the short, in short, there's no way for black people to be assimilated. Right. Either they have to become like us, which they never can be, or we have to destroy them all. And that seemed to be at that point in the sort of mid-2000s, that tended to be 
the end result of all vampires that they had to die because they could never be one of us mm-hmm. now i think it's more that they're evolved humans which in itself is kind of a weird way of thinking about it if you think about black people as evolved humans <laughs> that's the but i think one thing that's super clear is it changes once you hear their stories and right. that's what we're in this moment now like the mm-hmm. anti-wokeness which is woke is a nonsense word but, <laughs> but the idea that i don't want to have to hear your story because if i hear your story then i have to have compassion for you and see you as a human so i'm just going to pretend that you don't exist wow, that's deep. and that the only thing i have to worry about is how i see you that's mm-hmm. the what we're going through now the anti-diversity anti-inclusion it's too hard to think about the trans body and how they see the world wow. i just want to think about how i see the world and that i think is where the vampire narrative is important because you mm-hmm. go from hearing the human's perspective to hearing the vampire's perspective which when you think about it it's fictional so it's still the human's perspective right but it's still more sympathetic and more yeah. compassionate and now that i think streaming is the trick right that now there are so many black content creators it's kind of impossible you have to go out of your way to avoid mm-hmm. the black perspective well that's and it's interesting because as we're even talking i'm seeing these parallels and thinking about the notion of hearing stories and that you know, I remember reading early on in school, Crucible and all these stories about early colonialism and that how the Native American was the bad person, they were the savage. And I remember thinking as a kid, but you showed up here and attacked the like, why are they the savage? Oh, because they're not clothed properly or they don't do the things that we do. And it's, so just because they were different, they were the bad. That makes no sense. And like how that always struck me. But then you're right. In today's world, as we're hearing stories from authentic people who are sharing their actual view, not the white view that some white person heard and is translating, we can hear it from an actual group. It's like, wow. So all those things that I was told are true that you're dealing with and now I can hear it from you as opposed to hearing it secondhand. And so that's a really interesting evolution. Um, when I would teach about representation in media, I always started with the notion of we laugh at people first. You know, when you look at Amos and Andrew, you look at Will and Grace, like for me or for a culture to accept you, you have to be able to be the butt of our joke. And if we can laugh at you and accept you on television in a comedy, eventually we'll accept your dramatic stories. But first, you got to be the sidekick. You've got to be the point of, of laughter that, that, you know, holds it all together. But you can't be the real narrative. And we're getting to that point. And I see that parallel now. We're like, no, we can hear the narrative from your point of view. And we may not shy away or turn off as quickly as we would in the past. That makes a lot of sense. And that takes you back to the buddy movies Mm -hmm. and the idea of the magical black person or the black best friend Mm -hmm. or absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it's it's safer and easier to laugh first. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why I think it's interesting when we, you know, and when you look at that, that the, the monster narrative as well, it's easier to hate first and eventually find some humanity within you as opposed to trying to see your humanity from the get go. Yeah, and I think that's probably why the more common stories now are either parodies or romances. Mm-hmm. Right? So again, that's the idea that if I can fall in love with you, then there must be something desirable about you. But then I extrapolate that to the entire species, right? right? As right. opposed to it's your an individual. Yeah, I think that, that works. That's why I think vampire narratives today, the ones that we hear the most about, because it's absolutely not true. There are billions of vampire narratives, mm-hmm. but it's the romance or the parody because right. they're easy access. You're right, and yeah. the parody 
is super easy to access. Yeah. So I want to move on from there then uh, and, and move a little bit into the notion of why is looking at sort of the different ways that we police and sort of monitor and control black bodies. And um, while we met uh, at a presentation that I did at University of Scranton and shortly after I saw a documentary that you were part of um, called It's More Than Hair that was looking at the idea of, of black hair. And I think specifically about black women's hair or natural hair in general. Can you talk a little bit about the, the notion of, well, even just historically, sort of the importance of black hair pre-colonialism uh, and sort of what happens to black hair once we get brought to the U.S.? Yeah, so I'm going to generalize a little, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, you could see that black hair in West Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, was a marker of your identity. So you could tell, so we're in a period in which your tribe is your ethnic identity, not mm-hmm. your right so you could tell a different tribe that was military by the way in which they did particular designs in their hair Mm -hmm. tell who was married who was single who had children who had lost a child like all of that stuff was embedded in your hairstyle and there were lots of things that were kind of folky but that mattered a lot and told you a lot about that society so for example never cutting your hair when you're on your period mm-hmm. right? or never allowing a single woman to cut your child's hair these were traditions that people had or there's only one person in the community who is the storyteller it's their job to cut everybody's hair okay. right? because by cutting your hair they're taking a part of your story into themselves mm. so there were these super important ways in which you you demonstrated who you were where you were from, what your class status was, all just through looking at your hair. You could also do it through your clothing or your necklace, that kind of stuff, but your hair was unchanging. You took it with you. Mm-hmm. And it also demonstrated you through different parts of your life, which is why the move to Islam from traditional religions is really visually important. Because under Islam, now you cover your hair if you're a woman, mm-hmm. as opposed to leaving it out. And that makes a huge mark. Again, it demonstrates who you are by how you cover your hair. Okay. So, and I, I think it's important to remember that, that the what people that encountered Africans understood that, right? Mm-hmm. They, in their own communities, hair was important, right? They understood that hair, clothing, all of these things were social markers. So that's why when we begin to have profound racial slavery in the Atlantic slave trade, the very first thing they did was shave people's hair, mm-hmm. right? So if you want to make sure that I don't know that you're from Ghana. I don't have any way to contact you or communicate with you. But if I saw your hair, I'd be, oh, okay, thank heavens. He's another Ibo. So at least ah. I can see. But by shaving off your hair, now I have no way of knowing who I'm connected to. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, banning your natural language, right? So stripping away everything about you that makes you an individual, mm-hmm. connects you to a community, was intentional and purposeful. So it's really clear that they understood how important your hair was and they shaved it off. And then they made it so that, so black women that were actually slaves generally. So Mm -hmm. people who were slaves then used their hair as their one source of freedom, right? So if you can't do anything else with your body, your body is owned, even your child's body is owned by someone else. Your hair is this kind of beautiful thing that you can on a Sunday, my child that is not my child, I can braid their hair. Yeah. And it's that moment when I can sit and it's emotional and there are these little tiny things where I can express my own individual individuality and independence. And we don't think about how important hair is. 
we understand how important it is because how much the oppressor tried to take that away from people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's the idea of like with dancing, for example, they yeah. believe that you shouldn't move your legs too much, right? Because right, anything that they didn't understand became threatening. Yeah. And so this fascination with your hair became super threatening to them because what did it mean? Why are they doing their hair that way? Mm-hmm. And so that's becomes another way to control your black body. And then in spaces where, so now once we get to the 19th century and we're starting to have just in the simplest way, a third race, right? We're starting mm. to have someone that's neither white nor black and the texture of their hair then is what elevates them. Mm. So then you start to have the chignons, which are the scarves. Those are used for women who have natural hair. So if you're too dark to have straight hair, you've got to cover it. Everyone else gets to have their hair down, mm-hmm. which teaches black women, black people very early on what's acceptable. Mm-hmm. So my natural hair must always be covered but if I straighten it, or my friend who's lighter than I am has straight hair, she can show her hair off, and it's something that makes her beautiful. Right. So, and then of course, slave mistresses often shaved their slaves' hair if they found out that their their slave was having an affair with their owner, essentially mm-hmm. being raped. Then they have they themselves are powerless. So the only way they can ex- express any power is to shave the woman's hair. Wow. Because then again, it makes them ugly. Right. So therefore they would and it's their fault that then that the Jezebel stereotype mm-hmm. says that women are so black women are so sexual that white men can't resist them, right? So but at least if you shave his her hair, mm-hmm. maybe he won't be so attractive. Yeah. That's, so it, there's a lot wrapped up in it. So now you understand by the time you get to eighteen sixties, you understand that having straighter hair makes you better. It makes mm-hmm. you more valued. And not just in the white community. That's the thing that is so fascinating. It makes you more valued in the black community too. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes the whole thing. How do I get good hair? How do I get my hair straight? How yeah. do I get good hair? It's so there's so much in that what you just said. There's so much there to think about. And I I, I knew in as far as coming to the US, like I'd heard the story of cornrows being actual like escape routes and things of those natures, but had never heard the notion that actually in Africa that hair was actually a storytelling element. That it's yeah. it's it's like you're wearing a tapestry with you that's telling stories of your life or what you're currently going through. And so it really does speak to that importance and, and what you said that you can tell the importance of something by what they take from you when they can control you and the notion that you come over and they're immediately shaving your head. Like I knew, I knew historically of, of, you know, once landed, you know, stripping of, of anything that tied you um, like on um, paperwork to what country you came from and, and trying to make you look as just as assimilated as a black body as, as any other black body, but never thought about the notion that your hair could be tied to where you were actually from. And that that's another level of dehumanizing you so that you're just a black body. So that yeah. when we put you on the stocks to sell you, you were literally settling chattel because yeah. you're just another piece of meat at the end of the day. Yes, and has no individuality. That's mm-hmm. important, right? And then when you think about the fact that brothers were selling their sisters and fathers were selling their daughters, there has to be a way for me to separate myself yeah. from the thing that I'm doing. And yeah, the hair can be that thing. That's crazy. But also I think in places like Georgia where they brought whole tribes, right, so that they could, so that they could do right, they could plant mm-hmm. rice, right? So those kind of ways, that's where you start to see the hair being used as that way of how do I travel, how do I get out of here and mm-hmm. get to the war? Mm-hmm. Like putting that, that's so fascinating. It just shows you how, no matter how intolerable the prejudice, how terrible the conditions, people still found a way to survive. Yeah. Like that's, uh, how do you tell stories with the ways that you corner your hair? Even the name corner. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
That's it's crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So can you speak a little bit more? You brought up Jezebel's a little bit, but talk a little bit more about the, the Jezebel and Mamie stereotype that I don't think many people realize is, is an embedded part of American culture that we, and like growing up in a black household, I noticed especially growing up, born in the late 70s. So like my mother, we watched a lot of, you know, Solid Gold Soul and a lot of the movies that were made in the black exploitation era. And there was always that that stark image of the the foxy brown, voluptuous, very attractive, light-skinned black woman versus the Mamie who is the larger black woman who's the domestic with some sort of hair covering and takes care of all family members, black or white. But that when you look at American media, we were force fed that stereotype for so long. It's weird when you look back and realize, wow, there were so many, there was a vast variety of how black women looked, but this is what it was boiled down to, but that it served a function in a supremacist society that it's either don't trust fear, this attractive black woman or the domestic black woman, you have nothing to worry about, but she'll take care of everything. Yes, exactly. So the Jezebel is the first stereotype, which mm. starts with that contact in Africa. So if you imagine that Europeans living in that cold world have women's bodies covered from the top of their heads to the bottoms of their feet, mm -hmm. and then you get to Africa, well, why would you dress like that? It's like 100 degrees, right? Right. So they're seeing parts of a woman's body that they shouldn't, that British people, French people don't believe that they should see. Mm. And the only reason a woman would show that is because she wants to sleep with you. Uh, okay. Right. And then, of course, not all, but some African tribes had a rule where the members of the tribe, because slavery existed in sub-Saharan mm -hmm. Africa, mm -hmm. and so the free women were protected. And if visitors came to the tribe, they could have sex with the slave women. Mm. So white men did not distinguish. You're, I'm coming to your tribe and you're letting me sleep with this woman. That's because all black women are sluts. Gotcha. Right? So that's the idea that, but what the Jezebel is actually about once it gets to America is not sex, it's power. Mm -hmm. So the fear that black women, firstly, a black woman doesn't need saving. That's the trick, right? Mm -hmm. That if she's a slave, I can do anything to her because she's not a woman in the same sense. She doesn't have any of that purity. She doesn't have the beauty. She doesn't have any of the things that would make her, that would put her on a pedestal. Gotcha. But what she does have is this alluring sexuality where I can't control myself when I'm around her, which means a black woman can never be raped, right? Mm -hmm. But it's always her fault. Wow. So now when you get to a world in which I have to decide where my money is going, where my inheritance is going. Mm -hmm. in Virginia, they had a law that said, if you uh, fornicated with a woman and she could prove that it was your child, you had to support that child until you were 18. Now you can change the law and say that if a black woman has a child and you can prove it's your child, that child is now your property. So it now benefits you to sexualize all black women. Mm -hmm. But the fear really is that black women, and that's why it's Jezebel, because if you think about the Jezebels in the Bible, mm -hmm. they're all women that stepped out of their place, right? And then were punished. So they were okay. all women that stood in a, man, a man's world, wanting to be queen, wanting to destroy a Christian, right? So they're always women who wanted power and they use their sexuality to get that power. That's what a Jezebel is. It's a woman who uses her sexuality to gain power. So I think of it as someone like Nicki Minaj, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Or like, I don't want to say, or Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Beyonce actually would be a great example. Right. Think how powerful she is. 
and how she's used her sexuality to get her work out there. It doesn't mean that she's diminishing herself and being overly sexy. Right. It means that she understands where her power lies, right? Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying for white men, for black, for any woman, but particularly for black women to have power. Oh, wow. But if all black women are whores, why would you have them taking care of your kids? <laughs> that's where the mammy comes from, right? So I can't have that slut taking care of my little brother. So... I need to create an image of a black woman who is not that. Wow. So she's all these things. So the mammy is always older. And actually, in real terms, she's postmenopausal. Okay. So that means black women are Jezebels until they can no longer have babies. Because once they can no longer have babies, they no longer have the same economic benefit. Right? So, <laughs> right, so now you're a black woman and all you do is you take care of the family because you understand your place. You understand that you're inferior and that the white world is so much more important. But the, the mammy also was intended to show that she's, if you look at the mammy, she's black and she's fat. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's no miscegenation going on. If she's fully black, then there's no black and white contact going on in slavery, right? She's big and fat. Oh, Therefore, wow. slaves, aren't being, slaves aren't being starved. I mean, how could she be big and fat if slaves aren't being starved? In a world where there's no dentistry, she has these great strong teeth, which shows you how much healthier slaves were than poor whites, who if you looked at a picture of them, all their teeth had fallen out. Wow. So it's a way to show how great slavery actually was. And the fact that she's always smiling, well, hello, if she's a slave, why is she always smiling? Because slavery's lovely. She was so much happier when she was a slave. Wow. Yeah. Now, that becomes complicated when slavery ends, but mm -hmm. that's the point, right, is to show how wonderful slavery was, how once black women are no longer threatening, right, in other words, they can no longer have children, they become this woman who loves her white family more and most importantly understands her place. Wow. Which is why the mammy is such a big figure after slavery. Because yeah. you're thinking about those 40 years at the end of the century, trying to figure out how do we push black people back into slavery? Everybody suddenly had a mammy. That's crazy. Like, and even people like, oh, I can't think of a name of somebody now. I can't think, oh, now I can't think of anybody's name. But even if you didn't have a mammy, you read it back into history. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald is a good example. Mm -hmm. right? So he said he had a mammy, never had a mammy. But when he, they bury some black woman on their land, and note the idea of the mammy is that she has no family outside right. of herself. Mm -hmm. And the gravestone actually says, um, Oh, dear mammy, her family will miss her. She doesn't even get a name. Wow. Just our dear mammy. Right? It's the idea, again, of dehumanizing that person. Her only purpose is to take care of you. Right. And then the bit that drives me the craziest is that the help period. Oh, right? God. Where like, that bit drives me to, oh, just, <laughs> not just because of that whole white savior narrative, but again, it goes back to the idea that you don't have anything in your life that's more important than me. Mm -hmm. Right? And no matter what, I'm going to be nice and help you, maybe drive you somewhere that's nice, but I don't care about you. Don't have a family. You don't right. have children. You don't have, all you do is you live for me. And that to me is the mammy. But once black women are no longer having babies that are important, she becomes the matriarch. And that's the character that most people know. So the matriarch is this super strong, angry woman who emasculates her men. She's full of sass. And she she's Tyler Perry, Medea. Right, right? Right. Because now, what is she doing for the white world? She's not doing anything. She's not working for them because she was replaced by Latino domestic workers. 
She's not having babies for them. Any child she has is a drain on the state, not a benefit to the state. And so she becomes this angry, ugly character who, oh, back to your point, who is a figure of fun. Right. The, she's just there to laugh at. She's completely dehumanized. She's there to laugh at. And then we all read her back into our family. Yeah. So that matriarchal figure is very common in Irish American, in Irish families, in African families, Latino families, because that woman can't be saved. So think about your mother. No one was going to take care of her. Nobody was going to step up and get in the way of whatever was happening. She had to do it for everybody else. Right. And so in the black community, the matriarch is this figure of protection. Like she is the mother of the community. She's the person that feeds everybody. Mm -hmm. She's the person that goes to your house with, I don't know, chicken soup when you're sick. Like that's that woman. She's also the woman that it's Easter now. So I always say for Good Friday, I'm more afraid of my mother finding out that I ate meat than God finding out. She's that woman, right? So, and those are all positives in the black community, but they're negatives in the white community. And that was, that's the funny thing, because I'm sitting here and you're describing it and I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's my, that's my doll baby. That's my penny. That's my mother. That's my kid. Like, but you say it, it's a positive in the black community because like, you're right. Like I can, and the whole, if you're sick, you go to someone's house and like, there's my mom on the weekends, Monday through Friday. It was whatever we could come up with. But on Sunday, there was a chicken dinner that was always created. And any friend who wanted to come by was more than invited to come over and eat. And you're going to Dan's house for chicken on the weekends or a family reunion and like the amount of food. But it was it was open for everyone. But it was the women who, while in charge, also felt the dual role of taking care of everyone. You know, I think of in any popular black movie, the whole the conversation about who brings the person who brings someone a plate. You know, like it's the woman led matriarchal household, but you'd better bring your man a plate. Yes. That's <laughs> you know, oh, that's so interesting. Yes. You're in charge, but you must at least outwardly be in servitude to your man to still be considered a woman. But you run the household in this community, which, yes, to the outside white community, that's going to be the most confusing thing in the world to see. And if you don't you don't understand it, you start to demonize these things. Yes. Exactly. And I think that that's a really important point to think about the confusion or the contradiction of that role, right? Mm -hmm. That, again, it's that desire, it's an unconscious desire, but to regain your power. Mm -hmm. You know how emasculated your man is. So by bringing him a plate, you return your, his manhood to him. Just that little thing, right? right. And then the idea, you're like, like, my mom is in her 80s. She, it's not true. She turns 80 in a couple of weeks. And every time I call her house, one of my cousins goes getting advice or being fed or always, right? She's that yeah. woman. And when I was a kid growing up, my friends would always come to my house to eat. Mm -hmm. And it always, whenever you came in the house, you knew that there was something. Yeah. There was something cooking or something to drink or, but she was always very matter of fact about it. Yeah. It was always like, go help yourself. You know where the fridge is. Uh, that was the, yeah. Oh, my mom used to say, if you've been here once, you're no longer a guest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That is beautiful. Yeah. But that, I would absolutely argue, in America comes from slavery. Right? It, That's yeah. why we're, we're all one family because mm. we have no choice, right? right? So we, and we have to take care of each other and we have to take care of somebody else's child. Right. That child may have no parents. And so we all do it together. And then when we lose so much, particularly in reconstruction, and actually all the way to present day, mm. when you lose so much in your communities, you have to pull your resources. Right, right. Have to find ways like i have a friend who is brazilian and what really struck me during the pandemic 
was her community set up basically a barter system. I have rice, mm -hmm. you need someone to babysit, you need, right? And rather than you having to go out and pay for stuff, they just built this whole, yeah. it was the same thing back home, right? That all of the Nigerians that I knew, they all did things for each yeah. other. Without, and it wasn't a big thing, they just did things for each other. You know, and it's interesting because I think culturally, you know, people in the global majority, right? When we're talking about black and brown communities globally, that notion of taking care of one another, regardless of how much or how little you have, I really do feel is a BIPOC trait because there's not as much competition or worry that if you if your pie is too big, then I go hungry. Um, I know when I was at Misericordia teaching, we were in Jamaica and we part of the mission trip is we were, we were uh, painting over the church. It was the new year. Uh, and part of that culture is that, you know, you start the new year with new things, a fresh coat of paint, you know, bright and vibrant. So we're painting this church and every morning there was fresh fruit that was dropped off by the parishioners who would go out to their farms and collect little fruit and thing and bring it for us and we were like it's okay they're like no no you gave up your time to be here and we're like but we could afford to like we all paid to fly down here we we knew where we were coming to stay we had a safe place like this for us is really a vacation you know even though we're working but for them they were like no but you came here so we must take care of you yeah. you know and it was just the notion that you showed up even if you showed up and you had done nothing we would have woken up every day with fresh fruit and food that was donated by those parishioners and i don't and i know when we did trips locally in the US, that was not always the case. Yeah. There was there was an appreciation, but not the un you didn't even ask for it here. Yeah. You showed up in my house here, and this is what you're going to take. And you can argue all you want, but tomorrow morning the same box will be here. <laughs> you know yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I thought it was because I was British. <laughs> never show up to someone's house empty handed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but most of my friends do that. They don't, it doesn't even occur to them. Right. Like, even if it's not, even, I mean, like I was at my friend's house the other day and she has two little kids mm -hmm. and she specifically told me not to bring anything. I couldn't do that. So I bought her little kids like little coloring books. Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I can't go to someone's house. Right. Handed, and that's how you're trained, like mm -hmm. growing up that you always bring something. Always bring something. And if someone's coming to your house, and I know in some, you know, looking at parts of the, the Muslim faith and in, in, in religion, like, who matter who it is that shows up at your doorstep, if they are a guest, you must treat them as family. But I really do believe that that is a that is very much a BIPOC and a global level trait that on the one hand feels very subservient, probably does come out of being in that lower class viewed in a lower class environment. But at the same time, is a trait that is admirable, I would argue, you know, it's that weird duality of I know where it came from. But I don't know that I would want to exist in a world where that wasn't the situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And again, it shows you how we turn around oppression, mm -hmm. turn it into something positive, or at least find a way to exist with right. it. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And then I'm thinking about now that I'm the third, second generation, and there's another generation after me now, maybe mm -hmm. it's another generation, thinking about how that's changed over time. Yeah. Right? So by my mum being that contradictory person, like doing the, she was always, she was very strong, the center of the family, but then when a man would come into the house, she would suddenly be very subservient. This conversation is really enlightening, mm -hmm. but that growing up, that made me very contradicted and very conflicted, right? right? That I'm a strong woman, but how am I supposed to act around men? Right. Like that very weird kind of, and given that it's a generation such a big generation of female-headed families for mm -hmm. all sorts of reasons. Not because we're bad people, right? 
But for all sorts of reasons, families are... My, my mum was divorced. It's not that, you know, uh, she was a single mother or anything, but nevertheless, yeah. those things happen. And so you find ways to help each other. Yeah. It's but I also think we have a historical tradition of single families. Like, my yeah. mum from Nigeria, where they had a civil war, which would have mm -hmm. decimated the population. Mm -hmm. African-Americans dealing with slavery, mm -hmm. right? And our families being decimated. Right, so, right. yeah, you have to... Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that, you know, with when a man would come in, your mother would switch. And it's interesting, you being a man who grew up in a household with a single mother from divorce, like my mother was the matriarchal. Like I see black women as this very hollow hide figure. But I can also say that there were times that with my mother was dating, that woman in the relationship aspect was a very different woman than the one who was my mother. Yes. And it would be one of those was like, now, if I had done that, you'd have slapped me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I'm your child. Like, why is he? No. <laughs> like, yeah. Why did he get away with it, you know? But it's a weird thing. Is And now that I look back, you're right. As I grow up, it's like, it is a weird relationship. Because I see African-American women, black women, this is the power. You know, that's where that power is. So how do you enter in a relationship when you're taught that, well, that's where the power lies? Yeah. That's very my, interesting. <laughs> and now that my generation is having kids or has had kids, and what lessons were they teaching? Mm -hmm. Like that's I don't have kids, so but I do see like my brother has three girls, and my cousin, the people I'm close to, my cousin has a daughter, and they're growing up. Well, his yes, three girls and a boy. He actually struggled the most with the boy, but the girls are growing up in ways that they're so confident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they have such an, and we use the word entitlement in a bad way, that they feel entitled to be tra treated a certain way, which is awesome. Yes. That's yeah. Because when you go back two generations, the entitlement was you exist, and that's the exist. That's the end of it. And you should be grateful. Yeah. Like you should be grateful for every little scrap that you're given. Yeah. But that's now a, they're like, no. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Which, of mm -hmm. course, I don't know. If that's the next thing I want to talk mm -hmm. about, but that takes me back to hair today. Mm -hmm. right? That again, my I was always taught about being professional. Right. That you have to have professional hair. Mm -hmm. Like, and I started relaxing my hair i remember i wanted it so much to have my hair relaxed. and i think i was 11 or 12 when she finally let me do it uh -huh. and it was and i told myself for the longest time it was because it was easier but now that i'm an educated intellectual <laughs> it wasn't easier right I mean, how much how many hours i would spend going line by line straightening it out and then I couldn't go out in the rain. I couldn't take swimming lessons. Like all these crazy things. But now I have my hair with crocheted. It's super easy. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. But I convinced myself that that's what it was. That, yeah. That's really that funny. Was, yeah, isn't it? Well, and I think now in, in growing up and thinking about hair, I, my mom grew up in a very, my mother was always, I want you to have a job. I want you to be successful. So like you need to look the part. And I think I was probably, it was my sophomore, junior year of high school. I took her hair dye. It was honey blonde. I forgot the co the, the company now, but I dyed my hair. I did it. I had a little mini afro and I dyed it and she was pissed. But it was my version of rebelling. I was like, but I don't want to, like, I don't, I don't want to have to have a high and tight little high, you know, high top fade. Or back then it was the Tevin Campbell swoop on the side. Like, I didn't even want the black hairstyle. I just, I want to do whatever I wanted. So I dyed it this honey blonde, which ends up as this bright orange. And until it started to fall out, that was my hair color. And my mother hated it for the longest. And I remember in college, 
my sophomore year was when it started to thin and I got it braided and I only got it braided so I could take it halfway out like Method Man from Wu-Tang. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. you have the half braids and the half afro yeah. because yeah. I was the kid, but I was the double major. I was an RA. I ran the radio station. Like I hit all these things, but I wanted you to still remember I'm a black guy. Like I can wear the half braids, half afro and still have a high GPA and still run the radio station. And so like the only reason I wanted it braided was to do that specifically. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny, but it's also funny how they connect that. Like, they connect your hair to your job performance. How right. does one thing have anything to do with the other? That's what's so weird. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and I remember where did I go? We went to a conference, and my head the afro, and they were like, "You need to dress up, and you need to do something with your hair." Because we were going to, it was an RTNDA, the Radio and Television News Director Association Conference. And the school was taking us and they're like, we need everyone to look professional. Part of the goal here is to get a job. And I was like, all right, I'll do something. And I trimmed my hair, but I didn't undye it. And so it was still bright orange. It was a little cleaner and, you know, a little less nappier. But I was like, this is what you get. And I'm not wearing a tie. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get, I didn't get a, yeah, yeah, and I didn't get a job out of it, but I made a lot of connections in the long run of people that I've worked with and things down the line. But, and that was one of those moments where I realized, and sort of where I want to sort of wrap us up to is this idea of of how we control and sort of police black bodies in the world and in the workplace. Like I was taught very early, you have to look and act a certain way to be exceed, to be accepted as professional. But I was like, what does any of that have to do with my job performance though? Like if I've got an Afro, if I have braids or if I'm bald, outside of how the headset fits on my head for working in media, who cares? Exactly. But it's threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's that. And I, I, again, thinking about you and my brother, Thinking about it from here, he has locks now and he's had mm -hmm. them for about 10 years. But yeah, he ultimately shaved his head because it was just easier. <laughs> because he just couldn't figure out what style was acceptable. And he works in, he worked, he's a graphic designer and worked in newspapers for a really long time. So he was the only black man there. Yeah. Like, the only other black men were the security guards. Mm -hmm. And so it was all about softening his look, right? How do I look? And even when you would call on the phone, he changed <laughs> the way he talked, even, right? Just how, how do I be less threatening, right? That's, uh, and eventually, yeah, it was just like he did yeah. the upside down head, but you just, just shave it off. You know, and that's really funny in the, in, in the idea of how you talk on the phone. I was just, I, I, I tell the story often. I used to work with a, it was a black man who worked in the community and was doing a lot of work with black youth. And the first time we met after working together for about seven months, um, he walked by me in the restaurant we were supposed to be meeting at. And finally he calls and I'm like, I'm right behind you. And he was like, oh, damn, you're black? The whole time he assumed and partially I softened the voice. I, I try to sound more professional, all these things. But he assumed that my level of professionalism and how on time I was and prompt and all these things, I had to be a white guy. And it was one of those, we got to work on you and figure out why you assumed I was white. But also, what am I doing? How am I code switching that even with working with a black client, I'm presenting as neutral or white so that you don't realize that there's a black person on the other side of that phone. And that's interesting that you need to. Right? <laughs> yeah. And that's so interesting that it was so intrinsic for you that you didn't even know you were doing it. Never thought about it. But it's always been that that push and pull because I tend to work in, like you, you taught it, mainly predominantly white schools, so have I. And the majority of the places that I find myself working tends to be predominantly white. And so, and that I'm usually the only black person or black male that's there. And so I walk in and can hear my mother in the back of my head. No matter where you go in life, you're always going to be the in in the room. Yeah. And that when you think that, how do I soften that? 
and that we've been so almost trained to police ourselves that we diminish our blackness as much as we can. Yeah. And it's like they don't longer have to police us. We're doing it to ourselves. Yeah, that's and that's exactly why I'm so fascinated by stereotypes because mm-hmm. we end up doing it. We're the ones who police those boundaries of blackness. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And I think it's so fascinating that, yeah, again, we want to soften the way that we look. And like we just did in my class, we just did uh, Madam C.J. Walker. Right? And the idea of that movement towards relaxing. Mm-hmm. What is I find more fascinating is the male desire for relaxation. <laughs> that I find like that's so that was the moment in university when I mean, again I went to a university where there were like maybe four other students of color, and I remember when we read Malcolm X, and mm-hmm. suddenly all my white friends were explaining my blackness to me, and telling me how I shouldn't be relaxing my hair because I'm trying to be white, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh man, that was. But it did start making me think about it. And then the year after that, I did my study abroad year in Albany. Nobody braided their hair in Britain at all. Mm -hmm. Oh really? The first time I saw braiding was when I came to the US and was staying with my cousin, and she braided my hair, and my mum freaked out. Like, what have you done to my daughter? It was, and I kept those braids until they were literally falling out of my hair. (laughs) I had no one else to do it for me at that point. Yeah. She horrified at the idea that I would have braided my hair. Yeah. It just looks like my natural hair. Like, I didn't even do it like this color. I just mm-hmm. did it black. Yeah. So it just looked like my natural hair was braided, but no. That's crazy. Yeah. So, in thinking about this idea of, of policing black bodies, whether we're doing it to ourselves or as outside groups that are doing it, why why is it still happening? But where does that come from? Like, where, where this this obsession with and the controlling? And I know um, one of the uh, one, one of my previous episodes uh, in talking about sort of the the history of black on black crime and, and crime in America when it comes to black folks, um, there was a there was a quote. And I'm going to butcher it, but they talked about how even our modern police force today is built on the notion of the old slave trades. But yeah. all of those slave trades were just built on the monitoring of the movement and whereabouts and doings of black people. Like yeah. they were already slaves. They just wanted to know where are you going and why are you doing those things? Why yeah. are you doing it? And so that they made them deputized. And that's almost what our modern police force is. But where does where do you think this this obsession with the monitoring and controlling of black bodies and movements comes from? So when you think about when those police forces began, so they were the old patrollers, the slave catchers. So you think about the 1880s and 90s, it's that period when we're talking about eugenics and atavism. So I can tell by looking. And so there's a lot of literature in like the 1880s, which is where the clownsman, which is the birth of a nation, is written. Mm-hmm. There's all of this stuff that we're, the North is listening to the South that I can tell a monster by seeing them. And so it's about the shape of your head, the length of your hair, the shape of your body. That's where that stuff about policing black bodies comes from, is mm-hmm. that if I can somehow recognize the fear and that I can therefore control the fear. Gotcha. So if I can see the monster coming, and of course, all black people are monsters, right. but if I can see the monster coming, then I know what to do about that monster coming. And I can also control that monster by controlling their body. And yeah. the, the idea of controlling black bodies, their hair is the easiest part, but the more horrific part is the medical experiments, right? right? Particularly in the 1850s and 1860s, the belief that black women didn't feel pain. Yeah. So doing kind of just awful experiments on them when they're pregnant and all the things that the Nazis would then do. Mm-hmm. And we tell them to say that that's terrible. But at the same time that we're complaining about the Nazis. Yes, you've got the Tuskegee experiments. <laughs> right? So it's just, it's, yeah, that idea that the 
that we're just not human beings. Mm -hmm. And I do think that today, that's why I like teaching today, because I do have to rely more on my students. I do think that students now, while we still have those methods of policing, students are less willing to accept them. Mm -hmm. like, that's mm -hmm. the thing. Like, I'm going to do what I want, no matter what you think, because I'm going to find somebody who says that that's okay, yeah, right? right. It's going to validate what I'm doing. Whereas for us, there were very few places that you could find validation, certainly not outside of your family. Right? Right. So I think that that makes it a lot easier for them to know that they can be anything they want. Mm -hmm. But also then they're being raised by us, right? Yeah. So we know what it was like. And we, when we transitioned through that policing of the body, so that we can then tell our girls, our boys even, mm -hmm. something very different. Like the idea, my little nephew now, he's five, and his mum's never cut his hair. So he looks like... Oh, wow. Do you Beaker? Mm -hmm. Like he looks like Beaker. He has this huge afro. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, and he loves it. And whenever he goes to school, like he came back from school one day, and he was upset. He wasn't upset, but he felt the need to tell me that some of the people said that he looked like a girl, but he's still a boy. He just had long hair. And I was like, yeah, you are still a boy. Yeah. But the idea that, that his mother would let him go to school like that. Right. Right. That oh, my well, mom yeah. would cut that hair down, mm -hmm. try to tame it. She's like, you look great. And so he has all this confidence that, and the girls do, the girls, but the girls are going through their own version of the right. color. Right. right. You braid your hair but it has to be the same color as your hair. So they're going through and which sucks for them because look at me, mm -hmm. my hair is always a different color. So like I'm getting ready on a Monday and I think I might be purple this time. <laughs> year. So, that, so I like to send them pictures and it makes them very jealous. But then in the summers, they can do their hair whenever they like, however right. they like. Gotcha. But they just know. And the way that they framed it for them is that nobody is allowed to color their hair. Mm -hmm. like, but I, that's not the truth. Do you know what I mean? It's still right, because you yes, because you know if you're brunette and you make your hair blonde, that's very different than putting in pink braids. Exactly, you know I mean? exactly. I think that's very different, and I do think it's the last thing we had left. Mm -hmm. Right, the last way to control black people was the hair. Yeah, right? that's, that's all there is left. Because now we understand, even though it's still happening, enough white people understand now what's really happening in our relationship with mm -hmm. the police. Right? Yeah, that, yeah. And they're accepting that that's, that black people are not responsible, right? Mm -hmm. I think that to me is a difference with Black Lives Matters compared to other movements, right? And and I think you have friends now. Now I'm at a school where there's a very small group of black people, but when we did Black History Month, then they all had to do like four different engagements, do something. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was how many of those engagements were interracial. Like my roommate is black, or I went with my, I went on oh, one was very sweet. I went with my roommates parents who were from nigeria we went to dinner together like those yeah. kind of things that they did that really made you realize that white kids are less uh segregated yeah. than their mm -hmm. parents were and mm -hmm. most of that is pop culture right yeah. but yeah, oh, yeah. they're watching the same movies mm -hmm. listening to the same songs so mm -hmm. so there's far less separation but i think the black kids still yeah. feel that separation. oh no i think and i think so and i think it's right i think you're spot on that that yeah there's more i think the youth have more integration and more acceptance but also i think more exposure to difference than we even did as a generation and like i went to my high school was one of like the top 15 high school like diverse high schools in the country and i still felt i still feel that my son now 
has more opportunity and more awareness of the world around him, even though he is one of a handful at his school, you know, but even still in the media that he consumes, the games he plays, you know, he's on discord after school with different friends of different persuasions and all these things. And so I think it's spot on that you're right, that that the youth have a it's a little while it's still hard. They can be a little more authentic in who they are and how they show up starting at a younger age than having to wait until they get out into the world like we did to sort of start that cycle now. Like I'm trying to deprogram my own code switching because it's it's natural. You know, it's just too it's ingrained. Whereas my son, my son oddly code switches the other way because he's mixed. And so like his mom's an English teacher. I'm a professor. He speaks really well. I hate that phrase. But when he's around my family, you would think he was from Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he code switches the entire other way and there's times that i just look at him and i'm like where did you learn this because i don't even do that around them <laughs> but see that's also important and the thing that i think is really beautiful most people i know are in mixed cultural relationships mm-hmm. right that's super common in britain but that means that you've created this child that is more than one thing right and they've got a foot in more than one world which oh, yeah. allows them to be much more inclusive mm-hmm. right Whereas before that was something that you kind of, okay, so I'm going to diminish the blackness and just focus on the whiteness. Right. But now it's that celebration. And also it's that no longer there's that fear that I'm trying to be. Right. Yeah. So I have a friend who's married to a black guy and she would often get accused of trying to be black mm-hmm. because she wants to be celebratory and wants to be inclusive with her kids. And she likes to wear Nigerian clothing. Her husband is Nigerian. She wants her kids to enjoy both of their cultures. Right. That's the, so, but, but now her kids don't feel that. Now her yeah. kids, they can be anything they like. Like mm-hmm. they can speak Ibo. They can speak, actually they're in London. So they can speak London English. They mm-hmm. can they can eat English food and eat Nigerian food. Like that was a thing that my mum does that now. Yeah. Growing up, we ate Nigerian food. That's funny. You didn't, you didn't eat English food. Now she eats just as much English food as anyone else, right? That it's become so, it's weird to say Nigerian food. Right. It makes sense to just say food. That's right? funny. But, you eat like, and everybody is, it's cool to eat around the world now. Mm-hmm. So whereas my friends might not have wanted to eat my mom's ground rice, now they wouldn't think anything of it because it's, oh, it's a cool huh. kind of ethnic food. Right? Yeah. Like people are in Ethiopian restaurants, Nigerian restaurants, and Chinese restaurants. Right? Yeah. But it's the idea that you're, oh, I keep banging my foot. Right? It's, it's, it's the idea that you are part of a global world, mm-hmm. which seems ironic that you would then have to pass on it seems like, yeah, but let's just tell you that's what we always talk about, right? What's the difference? Yeah, you change people's minds by actions or by law, and you need both things, right? right? Agreed, agreed. You need so. Even those people who would never, yeah, and I think it's really sad to hear all those stories of kids who were discriminated against because of their hair. I do remember my first proper job getting sent home because of my hair, and I mean, I was a rock chick. If you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the hair, and then I had earrings all the way up too. Oh, uh, okay. And so I can't tell you which thing it was, but it got me sent home. Yeah, that was there. That's funny. I was in here. I had earrings too. I had seven between the two ears, yeah. and and that was one that playing football would often get me because um, I would have switched to studs. They'd be like, "Well, you can't wear earrings at all because your helmet." Da, 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 da. And I'm like, "But I've seen the kids at the schools that are really, really good, and they've got their cross ear. The the Catholic kids got their cross earrings and chain and necklace on. And why why can't I wear mine? Exactly. You know. <laughs> so. And then when they think about it, it's amazing how yeah, it's it's amazing how we build up these walls of discrimination. Mm-hmm. 
when you actually address them, they don't make a lot of rational sense. Right? So many of them don't make any sense whatsoever. So yeah. Well, I want to thank you. Um, this has been amazing. Yes, uh, <laughs> um, if uh, my listeners want to get a hold of you, what would be the best route to go ahead to reach out? Uh, direct to my email because mm-hmm. I'm terrible on social media. So it's melissa.aniwo at scranton.edu. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you hopefully again soon. So, yes, it was great to meet you. All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.